I think a materialist approach to things is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, more, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. Those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like, you know, grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? Um, you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to The Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm Dean Detloff, a PhD student at the Institute for Christian Studies in Toronto. And I'm at Vertico. I teach media studies at Greenville University in Greenville, Illinois. All right, so last week we wrapped up our uh, our episode arc on labor and organizing, and uh, we hope you guys got into it as much as we did. Um, learned a lot of cool stuff about unions, and I really liked the whole experience. But this week <laughs> we're going to start a whole new arc and change directions completely. Um, so over the next few weeks, we're going to be getting into the connections between evangelicalism and North American capitalism and how it has influenced global capitalism. But before we do that, we got to do all the other good stuff. We got to tell you about our Patreon and how it would be so cool if you supported us on Patreon. <laughs> this seems like a very weird pitch. That's okay. Yeah, uh, if you don't support us on Patreon, you can. Uh, you can go to patreon.com slash the Magnificast and um, give us a little bit of your, your hard-earned DOS capital, and uh, we'll really appreciate it. If you can't do that, that's cool, too. You can always just go to our iTunes page, and you can um, like and – sorry, you can't like things on iTunes. But you can <laughs> rate us on iTunes and give us, you know, your five out of five stars. Leave us a nice a nice review, and that will help us kind of climb our way up the uh, the iTunes charts here and make it all the way to the top. So that we can be, um, so that we can be the Christian Marxist influencers you've always wanted us to be. Um, so g- do those things. Uh, also, this is probably the last time I'll make this announcement. I guess I'm teaching this class at ICS where I go to school on Marxism and Christianity. So we're reading a bunch of Christians talking about Marxism and uh, Marxists talking about religion or Christianity in particular. And the class officially starts next week. So if you're into it, you can sign up for it. It's all online at icscanada.edu it costs 130 bucks us dollars uh which sounds like kind of a lot but it basically works out to being like 10 bucks a class and it's really great the other class i taught in the springtime went really well and i'm looking forward to doing it again this fall so if you're into that check it out you gotta check it out you gotta it'll help me pay my rent (laughs) Uh, (laughs) All right. Over the past year or so, you might have noticed uh, kind of like small cottage industry surrounding the analysis of evangelicalism and conservatism. You know, after Donald Trump got elected, people were kind of losing their minds and being like, how did this happen? And what happened to the the good moral majority that seems to have gone for a guy who's not so moral after all, not in a kind of classical sense anyway. Um, Most recently, there's been uh, a lot of kind of interesting stuff, though, happening that is maybe not as boring as like 
hey, look at these weird evangelicals. <laughs> For example, uh, Matt Sitman and Sam Adler Bell have a, a great new podcast that if you haven't heard of, you should know about called Know Your Enemy, where they dig into not just evangelicalism, but the ideas behind conservatism and the motivations behind conservative thinkers and, and networks and all that kind of thing. Uh, the Netflix adaptation of Jeff Charlotte's book, uh, The Family, got a lot of people talking again about evangelicals. If you hadn't seen that docuseries on Netflix, it kind of goes through some some shady business that's done by evangelicals in the political world. Uh, and then just a few weeks ago, we talked to Tad DeLay right before we did the labor theme about his book Against, What Does the White Evangelical Want? So there's kind of like a lot of more thoughtful engagements uh, proliferating. And of course, people have been talking about evangelicals for a long time. But as we're gearing up for another election cycle, I think people are starting to you know, have some some more interesting thoughts now about the political um, connections that evangelicals make. So the Magnificast isn't really one to jump on board lucrative niches uh, with as much brand potential as this. And so here we are, ready to do our own big investigation uh, into evangelicalism from our patented uh, or patent pending Christian Marxist TM perspective. <laughs> our trade left Christian Marxist perspective. <laughs> Yeah, so in this very first episode, we're going to dig into some of the foundational work so that in our coming episodes, we can get like right to the point uh, instead of giving you, you know, a lot of background. Um, in this episode, we're going to do a bit of a roundup of pieces that describe why anyone even cares about evangelicalism. Um, it had a political moment during the moral majority in like the 70s and 80s, and some of that momentum even carried into the Bush presidency. But until the election of Trump, it's hard to imagine so many journalists and news outlets really caring about something as weird and niche as evangelicalism. Like the 2016 election is kind of a big flex of their of their muscles, um, their big evangelical muscles, <laughs> that big, <laughs> that big antichrist energy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Those big, big uh, complementarian manly muscles. <laughs> That's right. Uh, for men only. But throughout this arc, <laughs> I'm just going to make a big save here. Yeah, throughout this <laughs> arc, I think that um, we'll see there's actually a lot going on with evangelicalism and its connections to political power, especially with the way it's shaped itself into a religion completely compatible and sometimes even just indistinguishable from conservative politics in the US. Uh, so I think what we hope to kind of understand in this episode is... Um, you know, why is evangelicalism politically relevant? Why are they dangerous? That was Tad DeLay's whole thing a few weeks ago. Um, where did they come from historically? Like, and what's like the motivating theology and politics? And then even hopefully, um, how you can, how can you engage with it? Um, something that is kind of as strange as evangelicalism. It's probably good for us to know how to deal with it since, um, you know, they are still Christians and we have to figure out what in the world to do with these folks. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I think that where we can start the conversation, I mean, you know, even like the, the conversation could start so many places, like we could start doing like a history, we could start talking about like a historical theology. And I think that we'll get to some of those things in in future episodes. But I think like the, the place that we should start here is maybe like... Um, where where evangelicalism starts becoming popular in this like sort of moment that we're having. So I think we could probably start talking about the 2016 election and like the role that evangelicals played there. So Dean, do you want to kind of lead us into that that bit? Yeah, actually, uh, right before, maybe we could rewind even a little bit to talk about our own kind of experiences in evangelicalism just as a, a setup, uh, because both of us were involved in evangelicalism during the Bush years. And then kind of shortly through the Obama years before we kind of exited in, in different ways. 
Um, so it might be helpful, too, to give some of that personal background, because I think in some ways we're entering this conversation as a little bit like outsiders, right? Like neither of us are part of evangelical communities anymore. Um, and I don't have that many like evangelical friends, even at this stage of my life, for example. But uh, we've kind of been formed by those ways of thinking um, in some ways, or or at least we're, <laughs> we're around people who were thinking that way for a while. Um, so I don't know, Matt, maybe, maybe before we jump into the 2016 stuff, do you have any hot takes from when you yourself was an evangelical? Huh? Yeah, I guess so. I mean, so you're right. I, I grew up in an evangelical church. I grew up in the church of the Nazarene, which is not like, um, not known necessarily for it's like extensive and strong evangelicalism, but it definitely carried a lot of like the. Yeah, I mean, it was just like it was all it's all inertia from the moral majority. At least that's how I remember it being um, lots of emphasis on personal relationships with Jesus and like the social obligations, you know, are, are all sort of up to like a personal matter. Right. Like they're all up to individual sort of acts of charity and that whole thing. Um, so I, I don't know. Um, growing up in an evangelical space is weird because there's a lot of weight put on individuals. I think that's maybe my one, my one big takeaway. I, I don't have like an overwhelmingly negative experience. I think, I mean, nothing like traumatic happened except for like the long socialization into evangelicalism, which is traumatic itself, but like, <laughs> you know, nothing huge. I, I just remember, yeah, like a lot of, a lot of, um, of the import was placed sort of on individuals themselves, right? It's about an individual relationship with Jesus. It's about doing things that are individually good for people. It's about keeping yourself like individually chaste and pure and, you know, not sort of transgressing on uh, gender and sexuality. But, you know, the, the focus is always on like, this is you, this is up to you, right? Like um, evangelicalism is a, is a religion, at least from my perspective, that is incredibly individualistic and it's all about your own sort of, um, relationship with God and choices that you make in the world. Does that sound like your experience? <laughs> yeah, it does. Uh, I kind of had a weird way into it because I grew up Roman Catholic and all my friends were evangelicals when I was an adolescent. And so then I ended up being an evangelical too, because my parents weren't like extremely pious or anything. And I think that was also the logic that kind of got me into it, because um, a lot of them were like, whoa, hey, you, you, you're like, you're a Catholic, so I guess like they decided what your religion is for you, but did you ever think twice about it? Like, have you ever considered your own personal relationship with Christ, right? And I was like, oh, no, I guess I didn't. I guess I've never thought about that uh, in the way that, that they had, you know, suggested. Um, and... Uh, you kind of end up going down the rabbit hole through that narrative of personal responsibility or um, asking people if they've considered their own eternal destiny or fate um, in a really authentic way. I think the bizarre thing about it is, I think you're absolutely right, Matt, that it is a faith tradition in Christianity that is totally centered on a, a rhetoric and logic of individualism. But paradoxically, or, or maybe not, uh, it's that logic is bulwarked by an extremely strong uh, community that polices all of your behavior, um, or tries to help you police your own behavior or something like that. And if you transgress that community, even if it's according to your own personal relationship with Christ, let's say, you know, maybe you have this evangelical way of thinking, and it tells you that you should really care, care about the poor or something, uh, the community will also clamp down and be like, you're not being individual in the right way. <laughs> something sort of bizarre like that. Yeah, I think that's a that's a good way. That's a good thing to bring up, right? That there are these sort of police functions. Um, but the police functions are all like, they are super individual, like, like um, something like accountability partners, right? right. That's like a huge thing for 
men in evangelical spaces, or at least it was when I was a part of an evangelical denomination um, or church. Uh, the idea there is that, like, you know, um, men are um, animal-brained, like, <laughs> sex addicts that, that, that like, you know, um, are so um, so overpowered by lust, they need another guy to, like, help them through it. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, uh, the idea there is that uh, you keep yourself from looking at porn because you know that you're accountable to this other guy at your church, which... Um, I don't know. I was never part of a group like that. Thank God. But um, I know they existed. I, I guess uh, what I'm trying to say here is that, like, you know, you have uh, you have these like sort of policing mechanisms within evangelicalism, but they're like there to hold you accountable and you accountable alone. Right. It's like mm -hmm. it's never anyone else's fault. It's always you being tempted and kind of giving into it. Um, yeah. So that's right. It does. It's um. it's an even it's a individualistic religion with like this strong community ethic of. Uh, self-policing and self-surveillance and everything else that goes along with that. Yeah, so that's some of the weird, I guess, <laughs> personal psychology of it or something, uh, <laughs> having gone through it. Um, but anyway, we can definitely get back into the, the election stuff from here. I just thought it might be nice to uh, at least give some background of where we're coming from with it, too. Um, so yeah, white evangelicals, a lot of them, uh, even though they all have these individual thoughts, uh, a bunch of them, it turns out, voted pretty overwhelmingly for Donald Trump. And the question is, why is that, right? Why are all these people who are supposed to be having this personal relationship with Christ and like reading the Bible and only believing what the Bible says, why would they vote for someone who is ostensibly probably like the least Christian looking president that anybody has had in, in the United States? Right. Like he's not the kind of I mean, all presidents are bad. All presidents are are not uh, not doing the Jesus thing very well. But like Trump is, I think, uh, an exception in that sense. Um, exit polls show that white evangelicals in particular voted in really, really high numbers for Donald Trump. Um, like the percentages are, are kind of debated, but it's it's astronomical. Like <laughs> it's like virtually unanimous, basically unanimous. Um, and that's the most that they have voted for a Republican presidential candidate since 2004 as well in terms of their turnout when they pretty overwhelmingly chose President Bush uh, by a margin of like 78%. Um, so it's pretty weird. Like it's a very weird thing. And I think a lot of people found themselves flabbergasted by that because they felt as though this was a hypocritical move that Donald Trump is not himself an evangelical. He doesn't seem to embody the kinds of things evangelicals say that they that they want or they preach, you know, like chastity or fidelity in your marriage or biblical literacy, all that kind of stuff Trump doesn't have. Um, and so people kind of felt that that was a, a big confusion. But as I think we're going to find out in the course of this series, uh, it actually makes a lot of sense. Um, there are systemic kind of logical reasons why evangelicals would do that. Yeah, the um, just to just to break down, I guess, to show you how extreme it is, the uh, the numbers that the Washington Post and a lot of other kind of the, you know the bigger media outlets gave were that uh, the exit polls show that white evangelical voters voted in high numbers for Donald Trump, eighty to sixteen percent, um, like like eighty percent voted for Donald Trump and sixteen percent didn't. That's the according yeah. to the exit polls. Those those numbers were like a little bit de debated for some interesting political reasons by evangelicals, but we'll talk about that in just one second. But that that eighty percent of evangelicals is a number that you'll see that comes up like again and again in these articles mm -hmm. about the twenty sixteen election. So like a ton of them showed up for this dude, which is pretty pretty wild, right? Um, so there's there's a lot we can say I think about the, you, you know what that exactly means. 
Um, but if you remember back to 2016, there there were some people, there were evangelicals who were very like vocal about um, being against Trump for you know the sort of ethical reasons that we might have said. Um, so uh, there's this kind of funny article that I always like to go back to whenever I'm thinking about evangelical stuff. Um, it's from uh, our boy, our boy Joe Carter from the Act Institute, <laughs> friend of the show, and, Joe like, Carter, a, a friend of the show, Joe Carter. Um, from the Acton Institute, who is um, who is I believe Catholic because he does work for the Acton Institute, but he is showing no, up he's in not. a different place. Oh, he's not. No, he's a he's a Protestant. Oh, wild. Okay. Huh. I just assumed he was Catholic for some reason. Well, the Acton Institute <laughs> is a, a Catholic uh, think tank or whatever, um, but you know oh. they're they're so ecumenical that they'll take capitalists from anywhere. Okay. Well, here we go. We have. Our Joe Carter, an ecumenical capitalist, writing this time not for the Acton Institute, but the Gospel Coalition, everyone's favorite um, evangelical news source. <laughs> um, well, anyways, he wrote this article. It was right after the vote in 2016, and it's basically like a response to um, to everyone kind of like slamming evangelicals for voting for this big this big dumb president. Um, and he kind of gives this list of reasons why the 80% number is wrong. And I think that the list that he gives are, is actually surprisingly interesting, sort of like sociologically, um, because uh, in some ways, I think it, it like digs a, a, dig, a deeper grave for evangelicalism. <laughs> and sometimes it, it complicates it in this way that is like unfalsifiably like specific and interesting. So he gives like a handful of reasons, but here are the three that I thought were really interesting. So the first reason that the 80% number cannot be true for evangelicalism is that one, the exit polls do not capture the quote evangelical vote, only the white evangelical vote. <laughs> um, Joe Carter so, is suddenly very concerned about the racial diversity of evangelicalism. Yeah, exactly. So in this like weird attempt, I think to maybe like soften the blow of like evangelicals overwhelmingly voting for Trump, he's like, no, it was only white people, which is like exactly the point. <laughs> so I guess thanks for pointing that out. I don't know. It doesn't seem like that really helps his case, but um, but it is uh, probably a helpful intervention actually that it wasn't eighty percent of evangelicals; it was eighty percent of white evangelicals, or um, or you know people who mark themselves very specifically in an exit poll. So the second complication that Joe Carter gives is that the exit poll um, that is referenced in these other news articles, um, it conflates evangelical and born again, um, which are two words that uh, in my in my mind are synonymous. They mean the same. They say they mean the same thing. But uh, Joe Carter says that these two words are not synonymous. He says for more than a decade, observers of religion in America have attempted to point out to both media and pollsters that the term evangelical and born again are not synonymous. It's a subtle but just, uh, it's a subtle but substantial distinction. While almost all evangelicals describe themselves as born again, not all who identify as born again Christian would say that they are evangelical. For example, some Mormons even consider themselves to be born again Christians. Yet no evangelicals that I've known says Joe Carter, would consider Mormonism a branch of evangelicalism. And I think that, yeah, I think that's an interesting distinction to make, um, but fair enough, I think. Um, and the third thing that that Joe, that my friend Joe, uh, friend of the show Joe brings up, is that many cultural Christians who never go to church identify as evangelical. So, like, don't cast the, br the blame so widely. <laughs> um, and I think that's, th these three points are kind of interesting, Um I think in some ways they're wrongheaded. Some some ways they're pedantic, and the third one is the most interesting because like uh, cultural Christians who never go to church identify as evangelical. To me, that does not 
help his case at all. I think that evangelicalism is the type of ideology that seeps into a culture um, and you don't have to go to church every day for it. It's not even, that's not even the point. So, um, yeah, I mean, that's probably the weirdest thing about that last bit is that, uh, of course, not all people who say they're evangelicals go to church. That's kind of the, that's the hegemony of the ideology or the revelation of its hegemony. Uh, though ironically, lots and lots of polls that have come out in the last couple of years have also shown that if you go to church, you are more likely to vote for Trump. So <laughs> I don't know what he's trying to say here, but, uh, it's a point that kind of doesn't really work doesn't really uh, fit the narrative. Yeah, I think it's an important point because if you are an evangelical type of Christian, right, and you said that you have to go to church to be a Christian, that takes some of like your responsibility as an individual actor off of you and onto the church. And I think that's something that um, evangelical Christians, you know, would have some kind of reaction to, some kind of allergy to. Um, so, you know, it's the sense that like, um, you don't, it, it's, it's the evangelicalism is a sense that like, you can be a Christian without going to church because all you need is Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, or, you know, like, um, the, the family, the Netflix documentary has a really good way of putting this right. The, the way that they interpret Jesus is, or the, the way that they interpret Christianity is Jesus plus nothing that, um, to be a real Christian, you don't have to, you don't have to go to church. You don't have to do, you know, any sort of external rituals. It's uh, just that you have to believe in Jesus in a specific way that you have to have a personal relationship with Jesus. So I think that kind of makes sense to me um, why Joe is saying it here. But it's like something that is hard to kind of understand exactly mm-hmm. why you could be an evangelical and not go to church. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> it's also just, I don't know, like the weirdest thing about it is that the the article is an attempt to kind of exculpate evangelicalism from being complicit in electing Donald Trump. Uh, but like you said in the beginning, it really just digs the evangelical grave a little deeper because on on pretty much every point, uh, the real kind of truth of it, I guess, is that evangelicalism isn't just whatever the Gospel Coalition says that it is. Um, yeah. And that's like the harder thing and the more important thing to grasp. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so too. Um, well, here's one more bit that kind of... Um, I guess adds to the the narrative uh, around the 2016 election. This is from an article in Christianity Today. Um, the this is like the moderate voice within Christianity, <laughs> maybe. Um, the article is called "Trump Elected President Thanks to Four and Five White Evangelicals." Um, so there's this kind of interesting bit here. I want to read really quickly. Uh, so it says this. As a wave of disappointed voters announced on Twitter that Trump's election has led them to drop the label evangelical, Um, this is according to Kevin Dendolk, um, a political scientist from Calvin, Calvin University. So Calvin College, man, can't remember which it is. Anyways, um, yeah, Kevin Dendolk speculates that evangelical believers who voted for Clinton may have been less likely to identify that way in exit polls, widening the born again gap between the two candidates. Um, The article goes on to say that while Clinton's campaign largely ignored evangelical outreach, unlike Obama, Trump spent much of the months leading up to the election day directly courting evangelical support. Those voters, particularly in battleground states such as Ohio, North Carolina, and Florida, proved to be one of his strongest support bases. During the Obama election years, as many as a quarter of evangelicals voted Democrat with Clinton, it was nearly 10 percentage points less than that. Um, Here's another quote from the the political scientist from Calvin. the fact of the matter is that this race only the fact of the matter is that in this race only one of the two major party candidates even pretended to care about white evangelicals. Um so the point here is that okay on the one hand you have like all the stuff leading up to the election that probably alienated maybe more of like the 
the, the slightly left-leaning evangelicals or w- whatever you might want to call them. Um, and that might have changed the like the results of the ways the exit polls work. But um, just the, so I mean, you know, the I'll, I'll just say the exit polls aren't perfect. And the number, you know, 80 percent is probably like skewed in some ways. But I think it does lend um, these explanations of the exit polls lend some like interesting descriptions uh, to these statistics rather than just saying 80% of evangelicals, right? It's like 80% of white evangelicals who weren't mad enough about Trump to not say they were evangelicals or something, right? So <laughs> yeah. we have this like Although, lots of wild pieces here. It's crazy though, because even here uh, in the article, it says um, during the Obama election years, as many as a quarter of evangelicals voted Democrat. It's like, well, that still means 75% didn't. Um, so even still, even if the exit polls in this particular election are weird, um, it's still the case that evangelicals en masse, you know, a, a very clear and unambiguous majority, uh, are not kind of interested in, um, a progressive electoral option or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So that's kind of a, a way into maybe articulating why evangelicalism matters, right? Like, it is a cultural force. It's certainly not the only one. I think that if you watch something like The Family and maybe some other things, you might walk away with this idea that there's an evangelical cabal or like a, a conspiratorial you know, group of evangelicals who are secretly pulling the strings of like all government or all political action. I think that would be kind of a big mistake. Um, it's certainly the case that evangelicals exercised an outsized kind of power, right? Like they punch way above their weight in terms of um, their percentage relative to the greater population in terms of, you know, maybe like uh, what you would think a group like evangelicals would be capable (laughs) of doing, just given how like completely bizarre they are. Um, But nevertheless, like they are a a cultural force that has to be reckoned with, you know, maybe they're not a a final conspiracy or something like that, but uh, they're a non-negligible power broker in American politics. Yeah, I think that's fair. And I mean, you know, the, the 2016 election, even given all these ca- the, all these caveats, um, are an example how that's the case. But it's also not like that that was the first case ever, right? There was, right. Um, there was considerable evangelical power that probably, yes, was punching above their weight, um, even before the 2016 election. I think the interesting thing, man, there's this part in one of the episodes of Know Your Enemy where they kind of explain the way that um, – modern conservatism has started trying to reshape uh, the way the government works to rule from a minority. And I feel like that's actually kind of, there's something going on there with evangelicalism as well, yeah, because for sure. I mean, you know, white evangelicals is like a super small portion of the overall, you know, population of the United States, but somehow they are loud and vocal and powerful enough to um, make meaningful decisions. So there's, there's something there to consider, not just with the election, but just overall. Yeah, not only are they small, but like shrinking, right, and dwindling and hemorrhaging members and still somehow uh, holding on to the reins of power. Yeah, it's true. Well, okay, so if um, evangelicalism has some type of political power, um, what can we do to figure that out? Well, (laughs) (laughs) not only are Dean and I just smart Christian people, but we've also got that smart Christian Marxist brand. So um, here's an idea. What if we used Marxist methodologies um to <laughs> think about evangelicalism and figure out like what the heck is going on here let's do it um 
that's the thing that we were talking about a few weeks ago and let's just let's just do it right now <laughs> so there's a few ways we can kind of start making sense of this from like a, a marxist analytical point but to me the place that makes the most sense is with the german ideology and if, if you haven't read it in a while or ever that's fine you don't need to <laughs> you don't need to because i'm just going to do it right here for you so um i'm going to kind of give you this piece um that Marx has about uh, ruling ideas and the ruling classes. This is from one of Marx's uh, pieces of writing called the German ideology. He wrote it in 1845. And um, the German ideology might sound like a very boring thing to read, but it's one of my favorite pieces from Marx. It's got a lot of good ideas in it. And if you're, if you're new to Marx and you want to know more about him and his sort of philosophy, uh, this is what you should read. Okay. So this is Marx. The ideas of the ruling class are in every epoch, the ruling ideas. An example, the class which is the ruling material force of society is at the same time its ruling intellectual force. The class which has the means of material production at its disposal has control at the same time over the means of mental production, so that thereby, generally speaking, the ideas of those who lack the means of mental production are subject to it. Um, so I can stop kind of reading right there. there there's, more, there's more to say, I think, for sure. Marx goes on to say some other good stuff, but maybe that's a, a good place to at least put a pin in it. So what Marx is saying here is that, um, you know, th there's a relationship between the economic base in society and maybe like what Marx would call the superstructure or the culture of that society. But the, the, the main point here is that like the ruling class or the people who set the tones for what types of discourses and ideas are sort of acceptable to have. Um, in um, larger sort of Marxist philosophy, there's this idea that there is a base and there's a superstructure. The base is the economic base of society and the superstructure are all of the sort of like cultural elements that um, emerge from the base. The idea is that the, um, the culture of a society is there to like keep and maintain the base running so that the ideas that are really popular in society are ones that are going to try to maintain the status quo. So... Um, I think from that perspective, what we can see is that evangelicalism, even though it is, um, you know, a relatively white evangelicals are a relatively small part of our society, uh, of the overall demographics, their ideas, though, uh, end up being like kind of important things that uh, we have to think about and sort of parse out that um, the ideas of evangelicalism are there to serve a ruling capitalist class. Um, and at least to me, this seems to like be a pretty straightforward comparison. I don't know. What do you think, Dean? Yeah, no, I think it's a really good way of talking about evangelicalism because um, evangelicalism isn't just, for example, like conservative ideas about the Bible, for instance, right? Because you could actually have pretty conservative ideas about the Bible and be socially progressive on certain issues that evangelicals are typically not, right? So somebody like Dorothy Day is like a pretty conservative woman. Um, you know, she like doesn't uh, sign up on all progressive issues or whatever, but she still thinks that like labor is really important and unions are good and all that kind of thing. Right. Um, in the, the social gospel movement in the early 20th century, like there were a lot of wild Christians, but there were also a lot of pretty average pastors who were just like, when I read the Bible, I really feel like Jesus tells us to take care of the poor. And that's what I'm going to do even to the, you know, the risk of my life or like I would go to jail for it or whatever. That's not the kind of thing that evangelicalism is doing. So the, the better questions to ask are not, um, well, how does this, uh, kind of fit together or not fit together with what evangelicals think about the Bible? 
but rather how does evangelicalism fit together or not fit together with the kind of um, ideas of the ruling class generally. And I think that when you ask those kinds of questions, you get to also think more productively about how these things come around. Um, one thing that I appreciated about the family docuseries uh, is that he, uh, well, in the in the documentary, um, Jeff Charlotte and the documentarians, they link the rise of this kind of evangelical um, power structure to actually anti-communism in the Great Depression. Um, and so for them, you can kind of trace a certain history of evangelicalism back not to ideas about the Bible, but to fears about the poor or about the rabble getting a little too excited, right? So Christianity becomes a way of creating a, a strong person's Christianity that's all about what we talked about earlier, right? Personal responsibility and that sort of thing. Uh, and that's a defense mechanism. It's a sort of theological defense um, that you can mount against organized labor or the organized rabble. Um, I think those kinds of things, those kinds of Marxist questions make evangelicalism a lot clearer than a matter of like, you know, authenticity or hypocrisy, because that's kind of missing the point. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, evangelicalism, I, I mean, thought of it in this way, right, is like um, it's taking Christianity and you're and you're hammering it into a technology that's going to serve a particular class interest. And I think that is, um, yeah, what evangelicalism does. And um, I mean, we've seen we've, we've talked about that before when it comes to like Mike Pence and others. But um, it's a it's evangelicalism is an interpretation of Christianity that purposes itself for the rich. Yeah, exactly. Um I think it's good, too, to think through this. There are many other ways to get into evangelicalism. You know, one thing that I appreciated so much about Tad DeLay's book is he really takes this psychoanalytic uh, reading, right, where he wants to say, well, what makes evangelicals desire certain things? And certainly there are some things that are more complicated than just uh, evangelicalism being a, a superstructure that emerges from the base, right? It's not just a mirror um, of like bourgeois ideology, and that's all there is to say about it. There's more going on there. Um, but you can't also get in sort of even the the mind of an evangelical and then certainly uh, not the political decisions of evangelicals if you don't understand that kind of base, like ruling class sort of situation. Yeah, that's good. I think there is definitely something to push back on Marx here too a little bit. Not like, not that it overturns him or something, but that evangelicalism has its own sort of set of like unique beliefs that end up bleeding themselves into um, political decisions as well. Like, I mean, I, I don't know, people are probably pretty familiar with this, I guess, but there's like, um, you know, uh, evangelicals are really invested in like, um, in a partnership with Israel. Um, and sometimes it's construed in such a way where it has something to do with like the, the end days, the end, like revelations and stuff that like, that's why evangelicals care about um, Israel so much. And sometimes I think that's probably like too much of a conspiracy theory, but other times it's probably a little bit true as well. I mean, there, all I'm trying to say here is that there are ways that evangelicalism um, affects the political thinking of conservatives. Um, and like what they value and what they don't value either like in like really kind of huge ways like that or smaller ways with how evangelicals think about, um, you know, who should be responsible for themselves or something. Yeah, exactly. Like evangelicalism isn't just an epiphenomenon of the economy. It also kind of recursively goes back to work on the economy and shape it in really bizarre ways. Um, yeah, there's like a feedback, a feedback loop in there somewhere. Yeah, exactly. Well, there was a pretty cool and very weird but cool essay written by this guy named William Connolly in 2005 that's kind of a big deal we mentioned it with Tad DeLay he cites it in his book against um, 
but it's kind of like a common essay to talk about. But the title of the essay is The Evangelical Capitalist Resonance Machine. And it's pretty wild, but he's basically trying to ask these kinds of questions, right? Like why, what ties evangelicalism to capitalism and to the political structures that it that it engenders. And he has a kind of a Marxist analysis, but he pushes back on Marx a bit too by trying to complicate the story. And I think that it's worth kind of bringing in here. So I'll just read, this is from like the very beginning of his, uh, his essay. It's kind of a methodological point. Um, but he says, no political economy or religious practice is self-contained. Rather, in politics, diverse elements infiltrate into the others, metabolizing into a moving complex. Causation as resonance between elements that become fused together to a considerable degree. Here, causality as relations of dependence between separate factors morphs into energized complexities of mutual imbrication and interinvolvement, in which heretofore unconnected or loosely associated elements fold, bend, blend, emulsify, and dissolve into each other, forging a qualitative assemblage resistant to classical models of explanation. So that's a lot of uh, academic words <laughs> that might sound like kind of a mouthful, but the basic point that Connolly is making here, I think, is that uh, you can't just say, well, here's evangelicalism and here's capitalism and here's how they are similar and here's how they're different. Yeah. Um, it's more like, well, all these things kind of emerge together. And if you want to understand one, you have to find out where it's bleeding into other things and being bled into by other things. Uh, and I think that that's also like an essential piece of thinking through that relationship. Yeah, I agree. The article, I mean, um, if you want to read it, you know, go for it. It's called the Evangelical Capitalist Resonance Machine. But uh, it does have a sort of Deleuzean sensibility to it where it is very complicated to read. But it's it's cool because it does really complicate, um, you know, a very straightforward type of causality where there's actually like a lot going back that, you know, one thing can't affect something without it also affecting itself. And, um, you know, when once one thing is affected, once, you know, Christianity has bled its way into politics, that there's a feedback loop that makes that, you know, politics even weirder yet. So I think it's a, you know, a pretty good um, explanatory model, even though it is written in a <laughs> complicated sort of way. Um, yeah, for sure. I'm here for it. As as a guy who's read to lose myself, I like it. But wouldn't suggest it. But I wouldn't suggest it to anyone else. That's what I'm trying to say. I guess it's good. It's good if you know it. But if if you not if you don't, um, don't worry about it. It's fine. Well, so um, based on these two observations, right? We have this thing from Marx where um, the ruling ideas are somehow related to the ruling class, and we have this other stuff from Connolly where we see that like it's actually a little bit more complicated than that. But there's like some feedbacks where um, you know political ideologies mutate and morph and um, influence one another in these like weird ways. We have these two ways of looking at evangelicalism that are not mutually exclusive. They kind of like feed into one another um, in in some, you know, pretty straightforward ways, actually. So what we did next was we thought it'd be cool if we could just kind of like grab a few pieces where evangelicalism um, has presented itself explicitly grappling with like economics or uh, political economy and that we could just kind of talk through some of those big ideas and and talk talk about the ways that um, evangelicals think about those things and maybe like what larger pathologies those things uh, give way to because there's probably a lot. So I guess what I want to do here is is um, carry on this tradition that that we've done on our show right of like you know people like tad delay who've done this like sort of more psychoanalytic and sort of psychology focused um 
way of, of thinking about evangelicalism, but also like a very Marxist approach too, where we think about political economy. So um, what we did next is something that really shows our dedication to our listeners. And that is we read a bunch of articles from the Gospel Coalition, not just that one Joe Carter uh, one, but a lot of too them. Many. So many, too many. So we pulled out a few here and maybe, you know, we don't have a lot of time left in the show right now, but maybe we can just kind of draw out two. That might be sort of interesting. Um, yeah. Dean, do you want to talk about the first one from Kevin DeYoung? Yeah, so Kevin DeYoung, if you don't know who he is, he's a, he's a pastor, pretty popular among certain evangelical sectors, specifically the the Reformed kind of brand, um, which is also why he's tied to the Gospel Coalition. But in any case, uh, he's a pastor who writes stuff to, to sound really smart. That's kind of his, his, his thing. Um, and he wrote an article called, Is Capitalism Unchristian? Uh, and he has a lot to say about the Book of Acts, and all of it's very bad. But here's a, a little um, paragraph that he concludes uh, the essay with that I think is really revealing. So he said this, I don't believe the Bible mandates a specific economic system. That's a very evangelical point. Capitalism <laughs> is not required by Christianity. But Christian principles do undergird capitalism, and the biggest of these is capital itself. When we hear capital, we think of money, but that's not the only or the most important kind of capital. <laughs> uh, I forgot where this is going, and it's very funny. Yeah. Remember, yeah. <laughs> capital comes from the Latin word for head. The most important element in capitalism is the human brain. The engine of ah. capitalism. <laughs> the engine of capitalism is the God-given drive, ability, and responsibility to create, to innovate, to conquer, and subdue. Yikes. When humans make something out of nothing or we make the same something more efficiently, we show forth the image of God in us. We turn a black gooey mess into gasoline and sand into silicon chips and we use those things to destroy the planet. Uh, that's the result of human ingenuity, which results in increased productivity. And it just so happens that increased productivity leads to profit and profits are ultimately where jobs come from. Ah, I hate this. I hate it so much. Why? Reading what, this? What do you hate about it? It, it, it gives you Latin etymology. Uh, it gives you the, the straight line from productivity to jobs. Uh, what's there not to like? This is so much. This, this is so thoroughly written by someone who is just, you know, the boss. He is a boss of so many people. <laughs> uh, I, I bet at the church that he's the pastor of, he's not listed as the head pastor. He's listed as like the CEO of the church or something. <laughs> I can't imagine it any other way. Um, yeah. So remember that capital comes from the word for head and the most important element is, is the human brain wrong. The most important element is labor power. <laughs> the most important <laughs> element is people doing the job for you, the boss. This is insane. This is a crazy way to talk. I can't believe that he has written this and put it on the internet for me to make fun of him for. Yep. But he did it for everyone to see. Um, I think what's unique about kind of the evangelical logic here is uh, especially that beginning that I don't think the yeah. Bible mandates a specific economic system, he says. But then he goes on to essentially argue for one specific uh, economic system that is, in his opinion, clearly like the most biblical that he could he could think of. Um, and that's like such a typical evangelical sleight of hand. I mean, I remember yeah. hearing that a hundred times when I was an evangelical trying to like propose something um, about like, I don't know, the Bible says we should care about the poor or whatever. And you would always hear from pastors like, yeah, okay, what does the Bible actually say? And then like, oh, well, what is our actual situation today? And like, don't you think there's kind of a big bridge to, uh, to build over it? And maybe it changes a little bit, you know? So it's all this language about how the Bible is the most important thing until it ends up conflicting with basically like white middle-class values, at which point the Bible kind of doesn't really mean what it says. 
Yeah, totally. And I mean, there is like some kind of wisdom in this way of thinking. Like the Bible doesn't mandate a specific economic system in the sense that it doesn't lay out like the it doesn't lay out like the the actual undergirding of capitalism or communism or something. But there are like some, there are some ethical concerns in the Bible that you can draw out that like, you know, tell you a certain way to live your life and capitalism just isn't it. Yeah, I think so. All right. You've got another one. Um, So we can just rush through this one because the point is, um, is less, I think tricky than in that one. So this is from the gospel coalition again. Um, it's called Economics 101, Productivity Starts at Home. Um, the <laughs> gist of the article is about, um, it's actually, the gist of the article is very interesting. It's about some like data that the author of the article has found um, about um, women and how much like how much value they produce working in, in the home as domestic laborers. Um, and like, it's interesting. Uh, it's interesting because it kind of like starts off with this, it's well, it's it's well intentioned, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. But it is, um, it is also complete garbage. Um, so <laughs> the the big idea is that there's like some weird analysis here to draw out that domestic labor is actually labor, which would be cool. Except that his point is that doing this, um, but but he he thinks that doing this, thinking about domestic labor as labor, reduces um, marital relationships to economics, and um, in that he doesn't want to do that in order to quote honor domestic labor um so basically what he's doing in this essay is trying to say that like domestic like women doing domestic labor is good it's really meaningful we should like husbands should honor their wives and so on but we shouldn't think of it as labor because if we do then we'll think of um we'll think of our partners not as uh not as you know um your your partner in in life uh your you know your spouse instead we'll think of them as workers and that will cheapen our relationship um and this is a quote from him from this guy uh who wrote it greg that's his name just as sex is never merely a physical event but it's always a moral and spiritual act productive work is never merely a utilitarian transaction but it's always moral and spiritual just as marriage can't be reduced to just a sexual relationship economics can't be reduced to merely finances trying to measure the economic value of parenting brings all brings all this home on both fronts and i don't like this uh domestic work is work um wages for housework it's important (laughs) Um, I mean, capitalism is such. Uh, capitalism is is built off of the primitive accumulation of, um, of of women's domestic labor f- for centuries, right? Like this is this is true, and and to recognize that doesn't mean you can't honor your wife or whatever that even means. It's just like uh, this is a way to reinforce the idea that domestic work is for women. And Greg, you can go to hell. <laughs> <laughs> What's crazy is like there's a point that he makes that's right where he says trying to to measure the economic value of parenting brings some things home, right? It brings the sexual relationship and like the uh, economic relationship sort of into one one whole. And that's kind of true, except that it reveals exploitation in the context of like evangelical homes. Um, But that exploitation isn't, isn't recognized as such. Yeah, totally. It's so weird. It's just he so quickly abandons the idea that um you know, that he so quickly abandons the idea that like a woman's work can be worth money or it should be or something. Right. right. So, so all of this is, all of this is here to, to reinforce the type of complementarianism that um, men are supposed to be breadwinners or whatever and work outside the home and women are supposed to work inside the home. And we should find ways to, um, you know, Christian men should find ways to honor their, uh, honor their wives. And like, uh, I hate it. I hate this whole way of thinking. 
Um, <laughs> but it's, it's very much there to enforce a type of um, extremely gendered capitalism. Yeah. Um, maybe to, I'm going to go just really, really briefly on this last one that we we had found, not at the Gospel, Gospel Coalition, but in Vox, um, an actually good article by Tara Isabella Burton from about a year ago that's titled, The Bible Says to Welcome Immigrants, So Why Don't White Evangelicals? Um, it's a good article. I won't talk about all of it, but I just want to pull out, there's one really fascinating quote from Paula White, who is, I don't know, like a really weird, she's like a faith advisor for Trump, and she's a prosperity gospel person. So she's like, not exactly an evangelical, but also like, not exactly not an evangelical. She hangs out with a lot of evangelicals, for example. Um, like, she had said, for instance, uh, trying to defend these immigration policies of the Trump administration, that Christians who argued that Jesus was a refugee are wrong, because she says Jesus did live in Egypt for three and a half years, but it was not illegal. If he had broken the law, then he would have been sinful and he would not have been our Messiah, uh, which, of course, is absolutely bonkers. Um, but if you thought like if you thought you could write off Paula White because she's not an evangelical, let me help you out here. Uh, Pastor Robert Jeffers, uh, Jeffress, whatever. He's the weirdest name of uh, First Baptist Dallas. Uh, it says he defended Trump's uh, policy this summer. Um, telling a reporter, any American who commits a crime is going to be separated from his or her child. You don't send children to jail with their parents in America, so I'm not sure why the only criminals who would get a pass on that policy would be illegal immigrants. And then, of course, there's the famous Jeff Sessions invocation of Romans 13. Um, you know, there's all kinds of, of kind of cynical uses of the Bible that you could point to in the Trump administration, administration and elsewhere. Um, but I think what, what I guess I'm trying to um, get around to saying here <laughs> is that these are all examples of how evangelicalism is premised on a certain kind of biblical logic, but it's one that takes the Bible as basically a completely malleable material that you can sort of put in the service of the ruling class um, and you just assert it and kind of move on. It doesn't really matter that what you're saying is like absurd or, or bizarre. Um, and they're not even being hypocritical because at the end of the day, it isn't really about like following the Bible. It's about trying to live into some kind of cosmological universe that protects white evangelicalism. Um, in fact, uh, maybe it's a good kind of thing to say here too. Many evangelicals who felt uneasy voting for Trump uh, did so saying Trump may not be a, a kind of King David figure, but maybe he's more like the biblical Cyrus character who, if you know anything about the uh, Hebrew Bible, Cyrus like protected the um, the Jews in exile and was not a Jew himself. Um, and so they were like, oh, maybe that's kind of where it's at, right? So they understand that logic even explicitly sometimes, um, that they're, they're mobilizing these points uh, to win political gains that will benefit them specifically. Yeah. Yeah, that's a, a good way to put it. Um, that's very interesting. Um, man, evangelicalism is jacked up, <laughs> to say the least. Yeah, I think the point about sort of the malleability of the Bible is really interesting. It's it's kind of it's kind of fascinating, though, the way that evangelicalism is like w within it is like this intense desire to take the Bible seriously. But there's also this whole there's this whole like hermeneutic mechanism in there to take the Bible and do kind of really wacky things with it. And um, I, I think that, I, I mean, this is, this is my own observation. We've talked about this off the podcast a few times, but there is, there is like this like striking kind of interesting millennial like exodus from evangelicalism that like, you know, it's people who were really kind of invested in the Bible because like our parents kept telling us to be, and it would lead us in these kind of like really weird directions that they'd be unhappy with. So 
it, it's interesting the ways that like the the desire to understand the Bible sometimes um, for for young evangelicals for millennial evangelicals led them out of evangelicalism, whereas uh, for others it was like a way to sort of reinforce the hegemony of a, a small ruling class. Um, so I don't know. I'm not exactly sure how those things actually work out. Like, what are the mechanisms by which like people can read themselves out of this weird group of people? But um, they do exist, and I'd love to figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, maybe we will. Maybe we will over the next several weeks. Um, I guess as we close, it's probably a good way to wrap up here to say the reason we wanted to do this series on evangelicalism is, A, because people have asked us to talk more about it, um, but I think more importantly because it is a, a cultural force that is really fascinating and strange and hard to talk about. Like a lot of people, I think, struggle to make sense of it. Um, I do too, having been part of it at one point in my life. Um, and so over the next few weeks, we're going to try to get some historians and, uh, you know, people who actually know what they're talking about <laughs> to come on the show and give us a little bit more of a, a, a flavor, some insight into what really is going on um, in white evangelicalism, especially, but the, the logic of evangelicalism in general. Yeah, I think it's it's more than just like um, it, it's going to be it's going to be really important that we learn some like history and we talk about, all, all, you know, the, the big ideas. But I guess like the the point of the Magnificast has always been to kind of like um, show people like show Christians like, you know, um, point them towards sort of like the, the leftist analysis of our society and our Christian tradition. And I don't feel like we can be really effective in like directing people politically if we can't understand evangelicalism. So there's definitely maybe like an activist point of this as well. Yeah, um, yeah. We got to know how to deal with evangelicalism because if we don't, then um, kind of like Tad Delay says, you know, they might end up killing us all. So, who knows? <laughs> right. Yeah. It's probably also worth saying at the end, too, that like, so, you know, we've been doing kind of a political economy thing in this episode in particular. Um, but in the past, like, we talked to Daniel Camacho, for example, not long after the election of Donald Trump. Um, and he had like a great couple of articles come out, I think in the Guardian at the time, but elsewhere too, talking about how white evangelicalism in particular is a racial project, right? Something that Tad also told us. Um, there are lots of other folks who will be attentive to, for example, like the, um, the extremely weird specific gendered nature of evangelicalism. Uh, there's all kinds of angles that are kind of all necessary, I guess, to get your hands on, on the whole. Um, but even more than that, like, it's a problem domestically, of course, because it results in like the active separation of, you know, people at the border and like the active policing of like trans people and uh, gay people and all kinds of other folks. Uh, but it's also weird because evangelicalism has these international kinds of footholds, too. And even in like all our favorite places like Cuba and, uh, you know, other kind of socialist projects, evangelicalism is a, an exported ideology uh, that is often used to bring with it capitalism and and a friendliness to American imperialism. So I think even for leftists, like it's not just important for Christians to understand why evangelicalism is uh, dangerous or how it works or et cetera. But even for leftists, it's important because it is a real ideological shaping force and it is uh, actively deployed <laughs> by like the U.S. government to destabilize other progressive movements. Like that's not a conspiracy theory. It's real. <laughs> it's real. <laughs> cool well we'll be back next week with um some more stuff about evangelicalism we'll see how it goes thanks for listening to the magnificast if you like what you heard you can support us on patreon patreon.com slash the magnificast you can also leave us a nice itunes review that'd be really great we'd appreciate it we'll we'll definitely give you an internet high five for 
for doing it. Uh, our intro music is by Amari Armstrong, and our outro music is by The Illogical Spoon. All right, see you next week. Church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church. We'll meet down by the riverside. There we'll swim with all creation. Never get tired, never bored. Don't worry, someday there'll be no dam between us and our Lord. Jackson, keep your hoods up, and keep your hoods up, and you stay up late. Jackson, you keep your hoods up, well you keep your hoods up, and you stay up late.